Chapter sixty two, part one of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume six. Chapter sixty two, part one. Civil Wars and the Ruin of the Greek Empire The long reign of Andronicus the Elder is chiefly memorable by the disputes of the Greek Church, the invasion of the Catalans, and the rise of the Ottoman power. He is celebrated as the most learned and virtuous prince of the age, but such virtue and such learning contributed neither to the perfection of the individual nor to the happiness of society. A slave of the most abject superstition, he was surrounded on all sides by visible and invisible enemies. Nor were the flames of hell less dreadful to his fancy than those of a Catalan or Turkish war. Under the reign of the Paleology, the choice of the patriarch was the most important business of the state. The heads of the Greek church were ambitious and fanatic monks, and their vices or virtues, their learning or ignorance, were equally mischievous or contemptible. By his intemperate discipline, the patriarch Athanasius excited the hatred of the clergy and people. He was heard to declare that the sinner should swallow the last dregs of the cup of penance, and the foolish tale was propagated by his punishing a sacrilegious ass that had tasted the lettuce of a convent garden. Driven from the throne by the universal clamour, Athanasius composed before his retreat two papers of a very opposite cast. His public testament was in the tone of charity and resignation. The private codicil breathed the direst anathemas against the authors of his disgrace, whom he excluded forever from the communion of the Holy Trinity, the angels, and the saints. This last paper he enclosed in an earthen pot, which was placed, by his order, on the top of one of the pillars, in the dome of St. Sophia, in the distant hope of discovery and revenge. At the end of four years, some youths, climbing by a ladder in search of pigeons' nests, detected the fatal secret. And, as Andronicus felt himself touched and bound by the excommunication, he trembled on the brink of the abyss, which had been so treacherously dug under his feet. A synod of bishops was instantly convened to debate this important question. The rashness of these clandestine anathemas was generally condemned. But as the knot could be untied only by the same hand, as that hand was now deprived of the crossier, it appeared that this posthumous decree was irrevocable by any earthly power. Some faint testimonies of repentance and pardon were exhorted from the author of the mischief, but the conscience of the emperor was still wounded, and he desired, with no less ardour than Athanasius himself, the restoration of a patriarch, by whom alone he could be healed. At the dead of night, a monk rudely knocked at the door of the royal bedchamber, announcing a revelation of plague and famine, of inundations and earthquakes. Andronicus started from his bed, and spent the night in prayer, till he felt, or thought that he felt, a slight motion of the earth. The emperor on foot, led the bishops and monks to the cell of Athanasius, and, after a proper resistance, 
the saint, from whom this message had been sent, consented to absolve the prince, and govern the church of Constantinople. Untamed by disgrace, and hardened by solitude, the shepherd was again odious to the flock, and his enemies contrived a singular, and, as it proved, a successful mode of revenge. In the night, they stole away the footstool or footcloth of his throne, which they secretly replaced with the decoration of a satirical picture. The emperor was painted with a bridle in his mouth, and Athanasius leading the tractable beast to the feet of Christ. The authors of the libel were detected and punished, but, as their lives had been spared, the Christian priest, in sullen indignation, retired to his cell, and the eyes of Andronicus, which had been opened for a moment, were again closed by his successor. If this transaction be one of the most curious and important of a reign of fifty years, I cannot at least accuse the brevity of my materials. Since I reduce into some few pages the enormous folios of Pycomar, Cantacuzen, and Nicephorus Gregorus, who have composed the prolix and languid story of the times, the name and situation of the emperor, John Cantacuzene, might inspire the most lively curiosity. His memorials of forty years extend from the revolt of the younger Andronicus to his own abdication of the empire, and it is observed that, like Moses and Caesar, he was the principal actor in the scenes which he describes. But in this eloquent work we should vainly seek the sincerity of a hero or a penitent, Retired in a cloister from the vices and passions of the world, he presents, not in a confession, but an apology, of the life of an ambitious statesman. Instead of unfolding the true counsels and characters of men, he displays the smooth and spacious surface of events, highly varnished with his own praises and those of his friends. Their motives are always pure, their ends always legitimate, they conspire and rebel without any views of interest, and the violence which they inflict or suffer is celebrated as a spontaneous effect of reason and virtue. After the example of the first paleology, the elder Andronicus associated his son Michael to the honours of the purple, and from the age of eighteen to his premature death, the prince was acknowledged, above twenty-five years, as the second emperor of the Greeks. At the head of an army, he excited neither the fears of the enemy, nor the jealousy of the court. His modesty and patience were never tempted to compute the years of his father, nor was that father compelled to repent of his liberality either by the virtues or vices of his son. The son of Michael was named Andronicus from his grandfather, to whose early favour he was introduced by that nominal resemblance. The blossoms of wit and beauty increased the fondness of the elder Andronicus, and, with the common vanity of age, he expected to realise in the second the hope which had been disappointed in the first generation. The boy was educated in the palace as an heir and a favourite, and in the oaths and acclamations of the people, the august triad was formed by the names of the father, the son, and the grandson. 
but the younger Andronicus was speedily corrupted by his infant greatness, while he beheld with puerile impatience the double obstacle that hung, and might long hang, over his rising ambition. It was not to acquire fame, or to diffuse happiness, that he so eagerly aspired. Wealth and impunity were in his eyes the most precious attributes of a monarch, and his first indiscreet demand was the sovereignty of some rich and fertile island, where he might lead a life of independence and pleasure. The emperor was offended by the loud and frequent intemperance which disturbed his capital. The sums which his parsimony denied were supplied by the Genoese usherers of Pera, and their oppressive debt, which consolidated the interest of a faction, could be discharged only by a revolution. A beautiful female, a matron in rank, a prostitute in manners, had instructed the younger Andronicus in the rudiments of love. But he had reason to suspect the nocturnal visits of a rival, and a stranger passing through the street was pierced by the arrows of his guard, who were placed in ambush at her door. That stranger was his brother, Prince Manuel, who languished and died of his wound and the Emperor Michael, their common father, whose health was in a declining state, expired on the eighth day, lamenting the loss of both his children. However guiltless in his intention, the younger Andronicus might impute a brother's and a father's death to the consequence of his own vices. And deep was the sigh of thinking and feeling men, when they perceived, instead of sorrow and repentance, his ill-dissembled joy on the removal of two odious competitors. By these melancholy events, and the increase of his disorders, the mind of the elder emperor was gradually alienated, and, after many fruitless reproofs, he transferred on another grandson his hopes and affection. The change was announced by the new oath of allegiance to the reigning sovereign, and the person whom he should appoint for his successor and the acknowledged heir, after a repetition of insults and complaints, was exposed to the indignity of a public trial. Before the sentence, which would probably have condemned him to a dungeon or a cell, the emperor was informed that the palace courts were filled with the armed followers of his grandson. The judgment was softened to a treaty of reconciliation, and the triumphant escape of the prince encouraged the ardour of the younger faction. Yet the capital, the clergy, and the senate, adhere to the person, or at least to the government, of the old emperor, and it was only in the provinces, by flight and revolt, and foreign succour, that the malcontents could hope to vindicate their cause and subvert his throne. The soul of the enterprise was the great domestic, John Cantacuzine. The sally from Constantinople is the first date of his actions and memorials and if his own pen be most descriptive of his patriotism, an unfriendly historian has not refused to celebrate the zeal and ability which he displayed in the service of the young emperor. That prince escaped from the capital under the pretense of hunting, erected his standard at Adrianople, and in a few days assembled fifty thousand horse and foot, whom neither honour nor duty could have armed against the barbarians. Such a force might have saved or commanded the empire. But their counsels were discordant, 
their motions were slow and doubtful, and their progress was checked by intrigue and negotiation. The quarrel of the two Andronici was protracted and suspended and renewed during a ruinous period of seven years. In the first treaty, the relics of the Greek Empire were divided. Constantinople, Thessalonica, and the islands were left to the elder, while the younger acquired the sovereignty of the greatest parts of Thrace. From Philippi to the Byzantine limit, by the second treaty he stipulated the payment of his troops, his immediate coronation, and an adequate share of the power and revenue of the state. The third civil war was terminated by the surprise of Constantinople, the final retreat of the old emperor, and the sole reign of his victorious grandson. The reasons of this delay may be found in the characters of the men and of the times. When the heir of the monarchy first pleaded his wrongs and his apprehensions, he was heard with pity and applause, and his ardents repeated on all sides the inconsistent promise that he would increase the pay of the soldiers and alleviate the burdens of the people. The grievances of forty years were mingled in his revolt, and the rising generation were fatigued by the endless prospect of a reign whose favourites and maxims were of other times. The youth of Andronicus had been without spirit, his age was without reverence. His taxes produced an unusual revenue of five hundred thousand pounds. Yet the riches of the sovereigns of Christendom was incapable of maintaining three thousand horse and twenty galleys to resist the destructive progress of the Turks. How different, said the younger Andronicus, is my situation from that of the son of Philip. Alexander might complain that his father would leave him nothing to conquer. Alas, my grandsire would leave me nothing to lose. But the Greeks were soon admonished that the public disorders could not be healed by a civil war, and that their young favourite was not destined to be the saviour of a falling empire. On the first repulse, his party was broken by his own levity, their intense discord, and the intrigues of the ancient court, which tempted each malcontent to desert or betray the cause of the rebellion. Andronicus the younger was touched with remorse, or fatigued with business, or deceived by negotiation. Pleasure rather than power was his aim, and the license of maintaining a thousand hounds, a thousand hawks, and a thousand huntsmen was sufficient to sully his fame and disarm his ambition. Let us now survey the catastrophe of this busy plot, and the final situation of the principal actors. The age of Andronicus was consumed in civil discord, and, amidst the events of war and treaty, his power and reputation continually decayed, till the fatal night in which the gates of the city and palace were opened without resistance to his grandson. His principal commander scorned the repeated warnings of danger, and retiring to rest in the vain security of ignorance, abandoned the feeble monarch, with some priests and pages, to the terror of a sleepless night. These terrors were quickly realized by the hostile shouts, which proclaimed the titles and victory of Andronicus the Younger, and the aged emperor, falling prostrate before an image of the Virgin, 
dispatched a suppliant message to resign the sceptre, and to obtain his life at the hands of the conqueror. The answer of his grandson was decent and pious. At the prayer of his friends, the anger Andronicus assumed the sole administration, but the elder still enjoyed the name and preeminence of the first emperor, the use of the great palace, and a pension of twenty-four thousand pieces of gold, one half of which was assigned on the royal treasury, and the other on the fishery of Constantinople. But his impotence was soon exposed to contempt and oblivion. The vast silence of the palace was disturbed only by the cattle and poultry of the neighbourhood, which rode with impunity through the solitary courts, and a reduced allowance of ten thousand pieces of gold was all that he could ask, and more than he could hope. His calamities were embittered by the gradual extinction of his sight. His confinement was rendered each day more rigorous, and, during the absence and sickness of his grandson, his inhuman keepers, by the threats of instant death, compelled him to exchange the purple for the monastic habit and profession. The monk Antony had renounced the pomp of the world, yet he had occasion for a coarse fur in the winter season, and as wine was forbidden by his confessor, and water by his physician, the sherbet of Egypt was his common drink. It was not without difficulty that the late emperor could procure three or four pieces to satisfy these simple wants. And if he bestowed the gold to relieve the more painful distress of a friend, the sacrifices of some weight in the scale of humanity and religion. Four years after his abdication, Andronicus, or Antony, expired in a cell in the seventy-fourth year of his age and the last train of adulation could only promise a more splendid crown of glory in heaven than he had enjoyed upon earth. Nor was the reign of the younger more glorious or fortunate than that of the elder Andronicus. He gathered the fruits of ambition, but the taste was transient and bitter. In the supreme station he lost the remains of his early popularity, and the defects of his character became still more conspicuous to the world. The public reproach urged him to march in person against the Turks. Nor did his courage fail in the hour of trial. But a defeat and a wound were the only trophies of his expedition in Asia, which confirmed the establishment of the Ottoman monarchy. The abuses of the civil government attained their full maturity and perfection. His neglect of forms and the confusion of national dress are deplored by the Greeks as the fatal symptoms of the decay of the empire. Andronicus was old before his time. The intemperance of youth had accelerated the infirmities of age. And, after being rescued from a dangerous malady, by nature or physic or the virgin, he was snatched away before he had accomplished his forty-fifth year. He was twice married, and, as the progress of the Latins in arms and arts has softened the prejudices of the Byzantine court, his two wives were chosen in the princely houses of Germany and Italy. The first, Agnes at home, Irene in Greece, was daughter of the Duke of Brunswick. Her father was a petty lord, in the poor and savage regions of the north of Germany. Yet he derived some revenue from his silver mines. 
and his family is celebrated by the Greeks as the most ancient and noble of the Teutonic name. After the death of this childish princess, Andronicus sought in marriage Jane, the sister of the Count of Savoy, and his suit was preferred to that of the French king. The Count respected in his sister the superior majesty of a Roman empress. Her retinue was composed of knights and ladies. She was regenerated and crowned in St. Sophia, under the more orthodox appellation of Anne, and at the nuptial fest, the Greeks and Italians vied with each other in the martial excesses of tilts and tournaments. The Empress, Anne of Savoy, survived her husband. Their son, John Palaeologus, was left an orphan, and an emperor in the ninth year of his age, and his weakness was protected by the first and most deserving of the Greeks. The long and cordial friendship of his father, for John Cantacuzene, is alike honourable to the prince and the subject. It had been formed amidst the pleasures of their youth, their families were most equally noble, and the recent lustre of the purple was amply compensated by the energy of a private education. We have seen that the young emperor was saved by Cantacuzene from the power of his grandfather, and, after six years of civil war, the same favourite brought him back in triumph to the palace of Constantinople. Under the reign of Andronicus the Younger, the great domestic ruled the emperor and the empire, and it was by his valour and conduct that the Isle of Lesbos and the Principality of Atolia were restored to their ancient allegiance. His enemies confess that, among the public robbers, Cantacuzene alone was moderate and abstemious, and the free and voluntary account which he produces of his own wealth may sustain the presumption that he was devolved by inheritance, and not accumulated by rapine. He does not indeed specify the value of his money, plate, and jewels, yet, after a voluntary gift of two hundred vases of silver, after much had been secreted by his friends and plundered by his foes, his forfeit treasures were sufficient for the equipment of a fleet of seventy galleys. He does not measure the size and number of his estates, but his granaries were heaped with an incredible store of wheat and barley, and the labour of a thousand yoke of oxen might cultivate, according to the practice of antiquity, about sixty-two thousand five hundred acres of arable land. His pastures were stocked with two thousand five hundred brood-mares, two hundred camels, three hundred mules, five hundred asses, five thousand horned cattle, fifty thousand hogs, and seventy thousand sheep. A precious record of rural opulence, in the last period of the empire, and in a land, most probably in Thrace, so repeatedly wasted by foreign and domestic hostility. The favour of Cantacuzene was above his fortune. In the moments of familiarity, in the hour of sickness, the emperor was desirous to level the distance between them, and pressed his friend to accept the diadem and purple. The virtue of the great domestic, which is attested by his own pen, resisted the dangerous proposal. But the last testament of Andronicus the Younger named him guardian of his son and the regent of the empire. 
had the regent found a suitable return of obedience and gratitude, perhaps he would have acted with pure and zealous fidelity in the service of his pupil. A guard of five hundred soldiers watched over his person and the palace. The funeral of the late emperor was decently performed, the capital was silent and submissive, and five hundred letters, which Cantacuzene dispatched in the first month, informed the provinces of their loss and their duty. The prospect of a tranquil minority was blasted by the great duke or admiral Apocacus, and, to exaggerate his perfidy, the imperial historian is pleased to magnify his own imprudence, in raising him to that office against the advice of his more sagacious sovereign. Bold and subtle, rapacious and profuse, the avarice and ambition of Apocacus were by turns subservient to each other, and his talents were applied to the ruin of his country. His arrogance was heightened by the command of a naval force and an impregnable castle, and, under the mask of oaths and flattery, he secretly conspired against his benefactor. The female court of the empress was bribed and directed. He encouraged Anna Savoy to assist, by the law of nature, the tutelage of her son, the love of power was disguised by the anxiety of maternal tenderness, and the founder of the Paleologi had instructed his posterity to dread the example of a perfidious guardian. The patriarch, John of Apri, was a proud and feeble old man, encompassed by a numerous and hungry kindred. He produced an obsolete epistle of Andronicus, which bequeathed the prince and people to his pious care. The fate of his predecessor, Arsenius, prompted him to prevent, rather than punish, the crimes of a usurper. And Apocaeus smiled at the success of his own flattery, when he beheld the Byzantine priest, assuming the state and temporal claims of the Roman pontiff. Between three persons so different in their situation and character, a private league was concluded, a shadow of authority was restored to the senate, and the people were tempted by the name of freedom. By this powerful confederacy, the great domestic was assaulted at first with clandestine, at length with open arms. His prerogatives were disputed, his opinions slighted, his friends persecuted, and his safety was threatened both in the camp and city. In his absence on the public service, he was accused of treason, prescribed as an enemy of the church and state, and delivered with all his adherence to the sword of justice, the vengeance of the people, and the power of the devil. His fortunes were confiscated, his aged mother was cast into prison, all his past services were buried in oblivion, and he was driven by injustice to perpetrate the crime of which he was accused. From the review of his preceding conduct, Cantacuzen appears to have been guiltless of any treasonable designs, and the only superstition of his innocence must arise from the vehemence of his protestations, and sublime purity which he ascribes to his own virtue. While the empress and the patriarch still affected the appearance of harmony, he repeatedly solicited the permission of retiring to a private, and even a monastic life. After he had been declared a public enemy, it was his fervent wish to throw himself at the feet of the young emperor, 
and to receive without a murmur the stroke of the executioner. It was not without reluctance that he listened to the voice of reason, which inculcated the sacred duty of saving his family and friends, and proved that he could only save them by drawing the sword and assuming the imperial title. End of chapter 62, part 1